Today's sermon is based on two passages. The first passage is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, which can be found on page 1847 of the Pew Bible. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The next passage is Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, found on page 1661. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Howdy, everybody. My phone did something spontaneous last service, so I think I'm going to turn it off. Um, Welcome to week five of Onward. Trying to figure out how, as a church together, we can engage the culture without losing the gospel. This week is on religious liberty. So I hope that you'll give me at least two mulligans in the sermon. If I say something that dramatically offends you, just be like, huh, and then just let it go. Okay, because this is, I mean, unraveling religious liberty is like trying to unravel one of those like wiring belts in a Boeing 747 with 16 million wires. So I'm going to do my best. Um, I take this issue very seriously. I have minors in both American history and political philosophy as well as um, the stuff I did in theology. I'm politically interested. I care about macroeconomics. I've read more on this than I should. (laughs) But still, it doesn't make it simple. Okay, now if you think about the two scriptures that Libby read, they almost sound like contradictions, don't they? And one of them, First Peter says, obey every governing authority, not just the, the emperor as the supreme ruler, but all the other governing authorities beneath them. And then it has its own sort of contradiction, right? Where he's like, and, and doing that, live as free people, right? And then in Acts 4, um, Peter and John say, when the rightful governing authority says, you can't preach the gospel anymore, they say, well, we're either going to believe God or you, so— we're going to believe God, and we're going to do what he tells us to, so we're going to preach anyway, and we're going to disobey you. To what extent is that in obedience to the biblical command in 1 Peter 2, or in Romans 13, which is even stronger than 1 Peter 2? Um, there's a number of cataclysmic sentences that Jesus dropped on the human race, but one of them that isn't often well-known, or, or the implications of it not very well-known, is this one. In Mark 12, 
Jesus is teaching, and these people come to him, some political and some religious, and they say, hey, um, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because good religious Jews knew, knew that when you pay taxes to Caesar, they go to Rome, and their own Rome uses that money to send soldiers to oppress you, right? And so Jesus said, um, let me see the coin, and they show him a denarius, and he says, whose picture's on that? And they say, Caesar's, and he goes, okay, well, this will work. He says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and then give to God what's God's. Which is, of course, a completely clear sentence that everybody immediately knows all the implications of. Well, it turns out that even in the Christian West, where Christianity was of most influence, there was about 2,000 years of different iterations of what it would look like to give to God what is God's and to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. From persecution through to nominalism to the investiture fights of the Middle, Middle Ages. Now, from there to the free churches, there was this basic idea that it meant something like this. That there was a, a sphere of authority that the government had. They didn't have authority over everything rightly. There were certain things that are invest, authorities invested in government rightly. And there are certain authorities invested in the church rightly. Now, you might say, wait, no, it says to God. That's not necessarily the church. Yes, but God is, of course, over government too. Jesus believes that. So when he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and God's what is God's, he sees another sphere of religious faith separate from the government, God being over both. But we most directly give our faith to God through this sphere, which is religion, church, faith. But the problem is, is that if you know anything about Jesus, you know that Jesus believes everything in life relates to God. Right? So how much would that leave totally in the sphere of the government in our lives? Nothing. Nothing. Okay? In the pagan ancient religions, you weren't saved by faith, which transformed you into a life of virtue. Virtue was a philosophical thing you did to live the good life that worked out. The eudaimonia, as Aristotle called it. And religion was like you cut necks off of chickens so that you could make good speeches, and so there wouldn't be storms that came up when you sailed. The two were not related. Religious, religion did not have moral implications for the most part because what did the pagan gods do? Well, they did anyone they wanted to. That's the whole problem, as Augustine said in chapter 2 of City of God. And so it's no wonder, Augustine would say, you act just like your gods, right? So religion didn't have moral implications. The government was supposed to punish wrongdoing, as it says in 1 Peter 2, right? So you see, there, religion as understood in ancient pagan terms had nothing to do with government as a punisher of evildoers, because it wasn't fundamentally moral, right? The only thing moral about religion in the ancient world was that the governor was probably the high priest if he was the king, and therefore, religiously, because he was a god, small g, you owed your allegiance to him. Now, when Jesus comes along, he's like, God is over everything. Everything matters. Everything is related to God. Our human dignity dictates everything that happens in our life, that we're created in God's image and been given a task by him. Therefore, everything relates to God. And then the government says, hey, a bunch of stuff relates to us. What does that mean? That means even though there are two spheres, there by definition has to be crossover. And figuring out how on earth to live in that crossover is something that we've had a number of iterations of. The, and not just leading up to the founding of America. That's not where our iterations of this ended. It wasn't like we went through that, and then we got the free churches, and then the pilgrims came to America, and then we decided that we would have state churches, but not a federal church, and then we wrote the First Amendment, and then the First Amendment said everybody had freedom of religion, and yet there was a government, and so everything was happily ever after, except for the oppression of black churches, and that black people couldn't go to seminary, and that black people couldn't worship as they wanted, and they couldn't go to churches, or provide their own preachers, or any of that. 
Uh, even in the 1960s at some evangelical, but biblically Christian colleges, black students were not admitted. Right? It took a while to sort this out. Right? And so I put the civil rights era from 1780 to the 1990s, not because everything's all sorted out in every way, but because we've actually entered a profoundly new era where the controlling force in it probably isn't civil rights. But what it is, is what I would call a post-consensus pluralism. That is, there is no moral consensus in the society. What a certain very large portion of society thinks is right, good, and true, and must be done, another very large portion of society thinks is evil, wicked, terrible, and vice versa. And in a context in which there is that much profound moral disagreement according to conscience, you can't make religion and government work together because of a basic understanding of moral truths that everybody agrees on that you can then put into law without hurting anybody's conscience. You see what I'm saying? So now what we have is a, a broad enough disagreement culturally that there is no moral consensus by which the government can make laws according to that moral consensus, but we all believe in that moral consensus because of our religion, and so religion and state can be intertwined and stay together and have this coherent culture that's cohesive in its laws, and it all works kind of okay, except for the races we don't like. Now what we have is this total warlike disagreement which undermines the basis of every law, because every law has a moral basis, right? We ha every law we have, we assume that there's some moral good that stands behind it. Except now we literally believe opposite in relationship to moral goods, depending on which of the major or 57 realms of moral theorizing you belong to. And so if the state is going to do something, it has to make choices about what's good and evil. And then if it makes laws, it has to coerce that on the people that would disagree with it, and yet, because we don't share one religion, religion can't solve that. And we haven't been in this situation since this situation, which was a while back. And burning dissenters and feeding them to lions is probably not the way forward. There is no new world to go to, and colonizing planets is still kind of off the starboard bow and probably not the answer anyway. So the question is, what are we going to do, right? In this season right now, which may not—our our blood may not be spilt, and yet it may even right this second be as complicated a situation as we've ever lived in. And so we have to start with the first principles of what the Bible teaches and what Jesus taught. And the, the, the most absolute first principle that Moore brings out, and which is entirely right, is that religious liberty is a mandate of human dignity and of the kingdom of God. A mandate of human dignity and of the kingdom of the God. That is, our religious liberty, our right to freedom of worship, freedom of belief, that is, we, we're allowed to believe the doctrines we're convinced are true, and third, freedom of conscience, that is, we have the right to live morally in accordance to what we believe is true. Does that make sense? That that is all wrapped up within religious liberty. And it is related or comes out of our human dignity, which means what portion of humanity would then have that religious liberty? Everyone, right? It's a universal or ubiquitous human possession. And no government can say it doesn't exist because it is something that God has created and it's been given to us by God. Governments can recognize it. Governments can respect it. Governments can oppress people that have it. But governments, because they don't give it, they can't take it away. Everyone possesses it 
whether it's recognized or not, which is why we can speak of oppression, right? Now, I think in order to get this straight, we need to think through three things. One is, we need to understand what religious liberty means and why we have it. Two, we need to realize that defending and maintaining religious liberty is a biblical thing to do. It's a—it is a moral good, and we should do it if we're gospel-believing, virtuous people. And third, we need to know the kingdom purpose of religious liberty, which is not to create big kingdoms for ourselves and to seek the American dream as lucratively as possible— but actually so that we could do what religious liberty is for, which I'll get to when we get there. Can, okay, it's probably clear by now that I would really love to talk to you for like 16 hours about this. I literally think I could talk for five hours straight on this and not say the same thing twice, okay? So it's been really hard to boil this down. And if I say too little on something, or if I say something unguarded, it's because I'm really trying to manage my way coherently through a lot, okay? Um, so th- the first thing is we need to understand what religious liberty means— which is, the, which is religious liberty takes its, takes its meaning and, and um, puts forward its existence out of human dignity, which is rooted in our creation in the image of God. Because we're created in God's image and been given a divine purpose. So last week I preached about human dignity. I'm not going to preach it again. So if you're wondering about that, you could go listen to that sermon. That produces human dignity, which— means that we have certain things that are true about us because we have that dignity, and one of those things is that we have religious liberty. Okay? Now, in the United States, one of the, one of our cataclysmic sentences, which is based on one of a number of Jesus's sentences, is that we human beings are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Now, in case you're not up on 18th century English, endowed means given as a gift in a way that is Inalienable, meaning it can't be alienated from us. It can't be taken away. So we have these gifts from our Creator that can't be taken from us, right? And that among these, meaning there are more things that we're unalienably endowed with in this list, right? But it at least includes that list and includes these three things, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, in the 1700s, the Founding Fathers were mainly focused on property rights because that's what they felt like was being mainly violated by the English crown. But they didn't want to say property because not everybody owned property, but they wanted these rights to apply to everybody. And so they widened it out to happiness. But nobody in the 1700s believed that happiness meant expressivism, that you can do whatever you want. Because everybody before about, I don't know, 1985, probably back to 1920, nobody believed or ever even wrote that happiness was pursued through expression. Everybody believed that happiness was pursued through virtue. There's actually manuals on how to be happy— before 1960, many of them, some going all the way back to the ancient world, and all of them say happiness is achieved—well, not the Epicurean ones, but all the rest of them— say happiness is achieved by pursuing virtue. Virtue produces the good life and peace among all those around you, and in the intercourse of love, peace, and justice, and virtue, all are made happy together for the best possible life. So virtue is the route to happiness, not expression. Does that make sense? And so the idea that we say pursuit of happiness means I should be able to express myself however I want is an idea entirely foreign to the founding of the country, all the way back as far as literature goes, with the mere exception of a few Epicurean documents back in the pre-Socratics. Sorry if that sounded like a lecture. The point is that that is not entirely Christian, is it? From a theological perspective, that's not really what our religious liberty is for. From a political perspective, it was—that's the right sentence for the Declaration of Independence. But we shouldn't take that on theologically as our Christian pursuit. The Christian pursuit is we have 
religious liberty <clears throat> for life, because you have to be alive to do, to, you know, to follow Jesus, relatively speaking, in this life. Secondly, we have to have the liberty to do it, but what are we actually pursuing? Right? And in the Bible, we're pursuing godliness and holiness as virtue, right? Look at this as one of the sort of famous verses on, um, on this. Paul's writing, says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, right, that we should have a thankful attitude towards rulers, that would be a really neat thing for us to do, wouldn't it? I actually had a two and a half hour lunch with one of the principals in the Madison School District that a bunch of Christians had been really upset with, and I just, we talked for two and a half hours, and I took about two minutes in it to be like, I just want to tell you that I know your job is really hard, there's so many interests that you have to juggle, and you're trying to produce academic excellence. I just want you to know that, like, we're also really thankful for all your sacrifices and what you're trying to do. I mean, just tell you, like, he went up four inches. Like, you could just tell he was like, oh my gosh, somebody actually realizes that this is incredi- incredibly complex and hard work, and I'm not just trying to progressively kill all the Christians, or I'm not trying to, like, go, you know, undermine all the— all the gays. Like, I mean, that, that's how people in authority feel. They feel crushed from both sides. And being thankful is a big deal. And he says we should pray and be thankful to them so that they would basically leave us alone enough that we can seek godliness and holiness peacefully and even quietly. That is, my goal is not to control you. My, my goal is to simply be respected in my religious liberty enough to worship God, believe what I believe is true, have doctrinal freedom, and to have freedom of practice and of conscience to do what I believe is right, and to not be coerced to do something that I believe is wrong. And if this happens, the result is that it pleases God, and that it is a good testimony to our culture, even the parts of our culture that are slandering us. In fact, if you go up three or four verses, it actually explicitly says that. So people who slander you can be ashamed of themselves. Because here's the thing, whenever you teach anything to anyone, you can't just say what's positive about what you're teaching. You need to use negative examples of what it's not like. If you just say A is like B, A is like F, A is like R, it's not a very clarifying way to teach something. It's much more clarifying if you say A is like B, and A is not like C. Right? And if the Bible teaches when we don't follow Jesus, we tend to walk away from our inherent human dignity, walking out of the dictates of the image of God, which leads to sin, and that sin leads to to death and brutality and pain and hurting of each other and, right? When that is in contrast to a group of people peacefully and quietly seeking godliness and holiness, that contrast is enormously instructive to all people. And so us doing that pleases God because he desires— for all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth by persuasion. And this is one of the ways we seek that, right? Now, part of what that is based on is the reality that that Christians believe, because of what the Bible tells us and what Jesus taught us, that our moral and spiritual lives are our most consequential and defining characteristics. Not our sexuality, not our education, not our economics— or any other thing we might put in, our spiritual and moral lives or selves are the most consequential part of us. Now, you you need to realize that secular, pluralistic, humanistic, pile adjectives on sort of the modern way of thinking, don't believe that. 
They believe in expressivism, not essentialism, that we are something. Essentialism means we have an essence. We are something. We're created in the divine image. We possess human dignity. And therefore, the most consequential root of who we are is, is here. It's inside of us. It's conscience. It's, the, it's where will, emotion, and belief or reason come together. It's in this place that we are most ourselves, most bearing the divine image. And it is those things that bring life to everybody, everything else. Let me, let me show you a, a passage for this. Um, I, I preached a whole sermon on this um, on 9.9.12, where I just preached out of 1 Corinthians 10 on human conscience. If you're at all unclear about that doctrine, I really encourage you to go back and listen to all two hours and 74 minutes of that. Um, it's not—I'm just kidding. But I go through at least 12 different biblical passages that teach a Christian doctrine of conscience. But listen to this one. This is, this is a very helpful one. He says, this is Paul writing to a church in Ephesus. I urge you to command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So Paul is writing to Timothy this passage. He's like, don't let people teach that junk in the church, right? He says, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And he says, the goal of this command, that is the command not to let people teach false doctrines in the church. He said, the goal of this command is love, right? The pursuit of all things Christian leads towards the commitment of the will and action to the true good of others. Love, right? Where does love come from, right? In the human person, right? He says, love, which comes from three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, that's not necessarily utterly systematic, right? But think about what that says. Where are all three of those things? Are those corporeal things? Are those, are those meat and guts? All of those things are internal realities of soul, right? A pure heart that is valuing what is the one true thing and not allowing distractions to obscure the beauty of the one true thing. Pure heart. A good conscience. That is, we do things according to what we believe is right, not on the basis of the consequences for doing what's right. That's the opposite of the flesh, right? The flesh goes, no, 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 Nick. The consequences matter. The consequences are the main thing. People make fun of you. People will fire you. People will hate you. People won't accept you into college. People won't, people won't, people won't, or people will, people will, people will, right? And a good conscience goes, yeah, I know. That's actually—it matters, but it isn't relevant. What matters in my action is what is true. And only when my conscience is focused on what is true can I have a good conscience and sincere faith. That is, the doctrine or truth that I believe in and ascribe to, I do because I actually believe it's true. That it's right. Right? And— Obviously, Jesus teaches all through the Bible that when that is rightly aligned, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith are focused on King Jesus, receiving his salvation, forgiveness, being empowered by his Holy Spirit, receiving the new birth that comes through faith. What that does is it re-situates us in our bodies, in our lives, with our drives and passions, and it reorients them so we can experience all of it, not just the pleasure. And it makes the pleasures of spirit and truth greater pleasures than the spirits of body and expression. But it also gives us back all the pleasures of body and expression. So we become people full of expression and happiness in spiritual truth, 
in moral pleasure and in the beauty of aesthetic expression. And they're all unified together beautifully. When we have a a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, our conscience, our spiritual and moral lives are the most consequential thing about us as beings. You see, if that's true, then no one has the right to coerce that place in anyone. One, God has created you such that no one can, right? Jesus said one time, he said, don't fear the people that can kill your body, but afterwards can do anything to your soul. Fear or pay much more attention to the one who can kill your body also, but afterwards can do whatever he wants with your soul. Because that's what's more consequential. That is, people can kill you, but they cannot violate your conscience unless you let them. You see, people who believe like that actually believe there are things worse than death. And that violating their conscience is one of them. That's why people used to believe that dying for something, even people who weren't Christians, they weren't Christians at all, but they believed in something that was worth dying for, and violating their conscience and living towards it, they would rather die than do that. You know why that is? Because you don't have to be a Christian to do that, because it is so human. It is so bound up in the divine image and the dignity of human being that if you have not been taught from the cradle to believe in some kind of expressivism that you're nothing but me expressing yourself through hormones, but if you believe that you are something, you don't even have to be a Christian to die for something because you believe in the inherent dignity of that thing and its truth and having a good, and have a good conscience about it. And if it's true, therefore, that the most consequential and the most inherent thing to our dignity is our conscience, then therefore consciences cannot be coerced by anyone, much less the state— or the church, or anyone. Which leads to two therefores. One is that therefore freedom of religion and conscience is essential to the human dignity of everyone. And that doesn't only relate to theological religious views. This is what people believe in conscience and faith is right, true, and beautiful, and their willingness to live according to it. You see, if we persuade someone, if we were able to coerce or pressure someone to do something Christian that they didn't believe was true, that wasn't, that doesn't save them. Remember, remember, in almost every other religion in the world, you're saved by something other than faith. And so, actually, coercion can save you. There's some faiths where you could be coerced into salvation. Christianity is one of the only faiths, not the only one, but one of the only faiths in the world where you literally can't be coerced into salvation because salvation is by faith. You have to voluntarily believe from the inside out and the seed of conscience, will, and heart. Right? What it also means is if we ever pressure or coerce anyone to act in a way that isn't from sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart, whatever we are pulling them to, we're pulling them to dishonestly. And that doesn't produce salvation. That's why the only capacity Jesus has given us to bring the world to him is persuasion. It's okay for us to, through truth, access the conscience, the heart, 
and the will of another person. With the truth, if the truth coerces them, the truth can coerce anyone. But we can't. What that means, though, is, is that that's not just true for Christians. It's true for all the other religions. And it's also true for people who ideologically are living according to conscience that disagree with us and may actually even be our cultural enemies in a way. Because out of their expression of their ideology that they believe in conscience, they believe that we need to be subjected to rules that keep us from doing stuff. And when we stand up to them, the weapons of our war, so to speak, are not coercion and pressure. They are persuasion. I can't go into all of the details about that right now. There's so much more I'd love to say about that. The second is that defending and maintaining religious liberty is a godly thing. Standing up for religious liberty is not mere self-importance. Now, you can stand up for religious freedom in a self-important way, but it isn't self-importance. It is a fundamental first right of all human beings. There is no right of human beings besides being alive that is more fundamental to it. Okay? And so therefore, if it is being trampled upon, even on the basis of some other right, standing up for it is not wrong. It is in fact virtuous and godly, and it is in some ways more virtuous if it is not self-interested. That is, if you do it for everyone. Remember, the only way we persuade a culture that thinks the worst of us that we're doing something out of virtue is if we do it in all cases, even when it's not in our self-interest. So if we only advocate for the religious freedom of Christians, we will be seen as bigots, even if we're not being bigots. It's only when we care about a wider swath of all humanity that all of them have this dignity that we begin to look like people who really believe in something. Right? Now, part of the reason why this is difficult is because it's not as simple as us dealing with a, an illegitimate government or something. Right? If Jesus says that all, all governments—the Bible says that all authorities instituted among men in some way are providentially put in place by God— and therefore we should submit to their authority. Whenever we say, hey, I can't submit to that, we are, we are not submitting to something that is morally illegitimate, but in the face of an authority that is functionally legitimate. And so we are constrained in ways that other people aren't, like people who believe in like revolutionary communism who are atheists. They don't believe that they're morally constrained to obey the government. Right? They believe in the revolution. We can blow stuff up. We can do whatever we need to. Christians aren't like that. We are constrained under God to obey the authorities that exist, right? And we have the right to conscience, and in some cases, because of that conscience, have to disobey them. And that's always going to be something of a complicated relationship. But there's at least three biblical directives that we can receive about how we're supposed to do that. How you doing? You with me? I know this is difficult, but this is so important, okay? It's—I know, I know. This is more—this is harder than watching TV, right? I get it. I get it. Um, there's, th there's three things. One is obeying functionally legitimate authority, right? There are lots of reasons why we would not want to obey lots of dumb laws that we think we should have the liberty not to obey, okay? I think I should be able to have a sunfish I catch from the lake and a fish tank in my son's room if he darn well wants to have a sunfish, okay? It is illegal in Wisconsin. It's illegal in Minnesota, but if you go get one in Minnesota, bring it back here, it's a felony. You're trafficking biological material or something, Okay? 
Um, I think that's crazy. So if you're in government, please change that. But like, but can I obey the gospel according to conscience and not have wildlife in my house? I mean, I can't. Of course I can, right? And so I can be like, ugh. I can even write letters and be annoying and hold signs in the Capitol, but I can't disobey it because they're a right authority. I can live according to conscience under that authority, so I have to. Okay? The second is, is that we can prophetically question what's morally illegitimate. So we can say, hey, um, I'm going to obey, and then I'm going to turn around and be like, but you shouldn't be doing this. This isn't legitimate. You need to change. So this would be Christian protest, right? So one of my African-American friends, um, Pastor Rayford, he says to all the young black men in his congregation, he goes, listen, he says, comply and complain, right? Now some people really don't like that. But part of it is just for safety, he tells people that. But part of it is, is, is his do- Christian doctrine. That all authorities are instituted among men, even ones that we are not having a good relationship with, we are supposed to comply. And then if they do something that is morally illegitimate, we can complain their socks off and should if what they're doing is morally illegitimate. There's nothing unchristian about that, and that's sometimes difficult. There are many situations in which Christians have, have engaged in, social dis- in, in civil disobedience and then taken the penalty for it. And, and told the government, you have the right to put me in jail, but you aren't right in why you're putting me in jail, right? Paul did this too. Paul took his beatings, except for when his beatings were illegal, and then he fought back. Now the third is that there are places where when what we are being forced to do takes away our religious freedom or our, our human dignity, we have—and so that we can't live according to conscience, we have the obligation— to disobey right authorities. Okay, now you might be like, and I've heard some Christians say, okay, but only when it's preaching the gospel. That's the only example given in the Bible or in the New Testament is when they say you can't preach the gospel. Only then you can. That's not true. Okay, the Bible actually has a number of examples. Um, Moore has a number of them in the chapter, but Obadiah is a great example of this. He's, he's under King Ahab, one of the worst kings in the Old Testament. He's going around killing all of God's prophets. Ahab is, right? Because his wife is nuts. And so, um, meanwhile, there's this huge drought, and there's all these civil things going on related to drought, like where you can find water and stuff. So Obadiah is doing all this work supporting King Ahab as king for the good of the nation of Israel, doing all that he can to bring about good. And meanwhile, he has hidden 430 or 50 prophets of God in a cave from Ahab. Now, first of all, um, cut people who work in government a little slack. They exist in a pretty complicated world. Okay, first of all. Secondly, though, do you see what he's doing? In all the areas where he could obey, he was. He was doing everything he could even to support an evil king, do what was right according to his authority as king, and in the area where he couldn't, he was subversively disobeying him. Right? And God blesses that. Same thing with the, with the midwives, right? They were, the Jewish midwives were told that they had to kill all the boy babies that were born to Jewish women. And then they didn't, and then the Pharaoh was like, hey, what's up with all these boys? And he's, they're like, well, Jewish women just push them out really fast before we even get there, and then we don't get to kill them, and it's, right? Which is, which is lying, right? And Revelation 3 says liars will have their place in the where? The lake of fire. And yet what the Bible says in this passage is that in that context, God blessed them and gave them children, right? 
And you can go on and on, right? Daniel, he was one of the best civil servants of his day. And yet, you know, you know what he was throwing the lions in for? The law was nobody could pray to anybody except the king for 30 days. That's it. 30 days, right? So all the guys that wrote the law just to get Daniel killed were like, look, there is nobody who worships anything in this place that, that won't stop for 30 days, right? I mean, think about it. How many people in this room who are Christians haven't had like a dedicated prayer time in 30 days? I mean, I bet it's at least a third of us, right? And yet, Daniel got caught the first day, right? He's like, oh, here we go. Just goes out and he just starts praying and they arrest him, throw him in the lion's den. And even after he's in the lion's den, the king goes, he was like, Daniel, was your God able to save you? And then you know what he says? With no hint of sarcasm? Oh, king, live forever. I'm still alive, right? Who says that to the guy that imprisons them and tries to get them eaten by lions, right? Oh, king, live forever. My God was able to save me. And then Peter and John, and then later in Paul in Acts 16, he's beaten without a trial as a Roman citizen, which was illegal. And so God does this great thing and lets, and opens the prison and he leads the, uh, the prison people to, to faith. And then word comes back and the centurion says, you can leave. You're free to go. And he goes, uh-uh. No, 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 no. Complain, complain, right? He goes, no, no, you're going to come back here and you're going to escort me out. Why, right? Because the first person who talked about Jesus in that city got beat half to death in front of everybody and thrown in prison. And then he'd just disappear. Now, what message does that send to every other believer in that whole area? Wait, you think those people are going to share Jesus with anybody? You think they're going to do anything but cower in fear? You think they're going to do something besides run back to their pagan religions? Those who are weaker in faith? No, Paul realized that if he went quietly— he might destroy the church and the faith in that whole city, that metropolitan area. And so he says, no, no, you come get me and you take me out. And you get egg on your face and you show people that you were wrong and you show them that from here on out, you are actually going to act justly towards people. And they did because they're afraid to get sued. And when you get sued in those days, you weren't insured for $250,000. You got killed if you lost your case. And so the Bible shows us all three of these actions. Obeying biblical authorities when we can still live according to conscience, right? Obeying but complaining and prophetically speaking truth, saying you shouldn't do this. This is wrong. To actually disobeying all the way through to utterly subverting the government. And even sometimes lying being a virtue. Like with the midwives, great example is in the hiding place with Corey Tenboom, where she lied to Nazis that came in her house and said, are you hiding Jews? And he had, she had like, there were like four of them under her kitchen table right then. And she was like, I'm not hiding Jews. Right? But she and her sister argued for months over whether or not a Christian could do that. Right? But God bless at least one example of that. Well, two, at least two examples of that. In very narrow situations. One of the things that you and I have to understand is, is that this moment that you and I have lived our lives in, in the United States, at this portion of history, is incredibly strange in the history of humanity. To live in a essentially free society that has experienced exponential economic expansion and wealth, in a country that is defended by two oceans— um, 
in a time where, because of a couple world wars, the economic system of the whole world has benefited us because of our currency, and on and on and on, right? The increase of medical abilities. Like, there's this incredible thing that happened in your lifetime. It's very easy for us to be like, this is what life is like. This is not what life is like for humans. What you have experienced, what I have experienced, this is not normal. This is incredibly abnormal. It is a blip in the history of humanity. It is a tiny minority of people who experience this birth of freedom that we've called the experiment of America. And so we should not lose our perspective and think in some way that this is what life is. People who have liberty fight for it every moment. Most people don't have any. And some of you, see, some of you are too young to remember uh, the Cold War and the Communist bloc. When I went to college, we were still reading um, books like Tortured for His Faith by Harlan Popov or um, Tortured for Christ by Richard Vermbrand about these pastors in Bulgaria and Romania who were tortured over and over and over and over again. Just being faithful to the gospel, still preaching the gospel, and the communists couldn't really kill them, but they needed to make them recant, and so they'd come to their house at night and take them to the police stations, torture them all night. Harlan Popov was made to stand in front of a white wall staring at it for 14 days straight. Until they were afraid he was going to die of, of edemia, I think. It's, what, is that what, and so they took him, and then they pretend, said they were going to blow his head off so he would recant because they feared he was in that state, but he didn't. And so they gave him a little while, and then they did it all over again. That, friends, is much more normal. And so the, the idea that, one, we don't have any kind of global obligation to lend a voice to the voiceless, both Christian and non-Christian, is, is a terrible lack of neighborly empathy for us, right? And maybe that just means you, you learn who to lend your voice to. You may not have to snap tweet up a storm or whatever, or like go and like blow something up. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that we should care about that. And on 1120, we're going to talk all that whole study is about the persecuted church, okay? But I don't know if you noticed, tens of thousands of um, Turkmen and another um, minority group were in Mosul, and they were persecuted just like Christians were when ISIS came into Mosul. And these are religious minorities, but there were tens of thousands of them just in that city. And their human dignity was defiled just like everybody else's. And so when we talk, all we have to do is switch in our brain that, that religious liberty is a human dignity and therefore is about everyone. And once you make that switch, it'll just, you'll just talk different. And you will include all humans in this issue of dignity. And the other thing is, is that this is—there are some people who are here who are a little bit younger, and you're just not old enough to see the acceleration of this in the United States, okay? Um, I'm 40—I'm 39, okay? So like I'm almost 100. And um, I'm, I'm just old enough to kind of see this, okay? Um, one of the Religious Liberty Foundations, I think it's called First Liberties, um, did a three-year study. You can Google the book Undeniable First Liberties. I will warn you, it's like more than 300 pages, um, where they catalog all these different case attacks on Christian liberty in America. And over the last three years, um, their study showed that it increased 133%. That, that's not that there were 133 attacks on religious liberties. No, no, no. It is— the last three years compared to just the three years before it, it was double and another third. Just in the last three years 
compared only to the three years before it, which was up dramatically from the three years before that. And so I know there's a lot of fashionable talk, sometimes among younger Christians, sometimes among people who support one of the two major parties in America, that like Christians are kind of whiny about this and like, you know, nothing's really changed and religious liberty is basically the same it was and you shouldn't get too exercised about it. Um, And sometimes it's hard to know if that's true, right? If we're just too self-interested and just too whiny. Objectively speaking, we're not. Objectively speaking, attacks on religious liberty are up more than 100% over the last three years. It was probably about at 100% or 120% the three years before that. And so the, the line is something like this. And so if Christians say, we have the right to defend our first liberties, that in and of itself isn't whining. Now you can say that in a whiny way, which isn't helpful, but it isn't itself whining. It is true. It is a fact And it is a godly thing not just to stand up for the first liberties of all people in the world, but it's also a godly and right thing for us to stand up for our own first liberties. But we also have to be careful not to construe them in such a way as to destroy the first liberties of our neighbors, which is getting more complicated when people don't believe anything similar to each other. And lastly, that we need to know the kingdom purpose of our religious liberty. That is, so we can live out the kingdom mission in our culture. Um, Moore said it this way. He said— Religious liberty is freedom to carry out the mission of the church and the gospel, not to pursue the American dream in the style we choose without interference. Right? The the purpose of religious liberty is not so you can do whatever you want. Now, in some ways, that is the purpose of liberty to a certain extent. But one of the reasons the Founding Fathers of the United States didn't actually use the word freedom very much, but used the word liberty a lot more, was because liberty was bound up with an idea of morality that you had to be free to pursue the good. And only constraining people from pursuing the good was considered injustice. Right? Because if I tell you you can't kill somebody, I'm constraining your, your freedom. Right? But according to the historic definition of liberty, that wouldn't have been a constraint on your liberty. Right? A, a, taking away somebody's liberty was, it was to, to take away something that they should pursue or that they could pursue in a morally neutral way. Does that make sense? And so what we are to pursue as those who belong to Jesus are the things that we talked about already so, um, so that we can be free to pursue um, godliness and holiness. Remember that passage from 1 Timothy 2 where it said, pray and thank the governing officials and ask— Ask God that they would leave you alone so that peaceably and quietly you could pursue all godliness and holiness. So the first purpose is not to pursue wealth, but to pursue godliness. That's what we want freedom to do, so that we can be godly. That's all. We want to be left alone to do what's right, to live according to conscience. Does that make sense? Secondly, so that we're free to pursue, free to persuade people to become Christ's disciples. We don't need the freedom to coerce people. And we don't need the freedom to pressure people, but we do need the freedom to persuade people. And no government can take that away from us, and no power or authority can take that away from us. Which means lesser authorities like schools, and even parents. It says in the, what we call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus starts that off by saying, not, go make disciples. He says, all authority, because remember this is an authority issue. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. You see, the basis of the go, right, therefore, right, is Jesus says, listen, I know that there are authorities out there that are going to tell you not to do this. 
that are going to tell you you don't have the right to do this, that are going to tell you you should shut up and stop doing this. But listen, because of my death and resurrection, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. Therefore, I have the right to tell you to do certain things. And the thing I'm telling you to do with all authority is to go and make disciples. Now notice, he doesn't say go and make money. He doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, therefore go and make money. He could have said that. Jesus had all authority in heaven and earth. He could have said, you have unlimited economic freedom. He could have said that. That no government can tax you, that you can do whatever you want. But he didn't say that. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, here is the right that I give you over every authority in all of the earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, right? And then the last thing, the third thing is this, is so that we'll learn how to be rulers of a kingdom of faith, freedom, worship, virtue, and conscience, right? In the earlier chapters, Russell Moore said, he said, we're, this, this world is a preparation for the next. It's not just a test for the next. It is a formation for the next, Right? In 1 Corinthians um, 6, there's this place where Christians are going and suing each other in court, right? And Paul's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And they're like, that's why the courts are there, to sue each other, right? And he's like, he's like, think about this, right? He's like, don't you realize that you're going to judge the world? Like, in the new heavens and the new earth, you're going to be authorities, and you're going to judge the world. He's like, you're actually— you're actually even going to judge angels. Like, angels are doing their job right now. And in judgment, everybody's going to get judged, including angels, and you are going to be involved in judging them. Now, how in God's name does it make any sense to sue another dude in the church for 10,000 bucks? How does that make any sense? He's like, get a kid from the children's ministry, right, and get him a special hat, right? And sit him down and talk it out, and he will tell you the right thing to do. It is not hard to figure out the right thing to do. If, if, and only if, we are a people of a pure heart, right? We want one thing to glorify God. That's it. No matter what the lawsuit is about, right? Two, a good conscience. No matter what the right thing is, no matter how it favors us or disfavors us, we will do it. And a sincere faith. You get two people with those three things in a room, and I can, ma- I can bring in an eight-year-old, and we can solve your problem. Guaranteed. The reason why we can't is because one or both of those people does not have one or all of those three characteristics. And so when we come to Jesus— and that means a re-enlivening of conscience, soul, heart, faith. And we become the sort of people that Jesus is making into those who will rule in a greater world. We should be the kind of people that are learning what it's going to be like to serve Jesus in a very different place. And that is part of what it means to advocate for what's right, to honor other people's human dignity, to stand up for our own, because putting aside our own human dignity is not right either. And yet, it's very difficult to stand up for your own human dignity without standing up for your own pride. That is a very hard thing to do. And yet, it is those kinds of people that Jesus is making 
to be his citizens and rulers for a new heavens and a new earth, and we are meant to become those people. Right? Faith is the centerpiece of salvation, Jesus taught. That faith produces a hope for a new city and a new life with God, and it produces love. And where does love come from? Pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere, sincere faith. Things that can never be coerced. They can never be coerced, but they must be received for people to be saved. To experience them themselves as, they, as they, they've been created. To escape damnation and to receive salvation. To transform the world around them. To become people who seek godliness and holiness. And to be citizens of a new city that Jesus is bringing into existence. And so God has not given us, the church, the sort of coercion or pressure. He's given us only the truth to utilize through persuasion. And it is the truth that commands men and women to obey. Because that's the only way they can do so with a, with a good conscience. And if they come to obey for any other reason than a good conscience, then they don't have a sincere faith. And so we need to recognize that what we have, what we have to use, is persuasion in relationship to the truth. And the beauty of living out that truth among all people. But we also have to recognize that no one and nothing has the right to take from anyone, you included, the most fundamental human dignity, which is the freedom to live according to conscience, which includes religious liberty and the right to worship the right to believe the truth and confess the truth and to live morally and spiritually according to the truth. The right of worship, confession, and conscience. And it is virtuous and right that we should stand up for that right for ourselves and for all people. And in the midst of that, we can never forget why we have those freedoms. We have those freedoms so that we can pursue godliness so that we can persuade others of the truth of the gospel, and so that we can learn to be the people who Jesus will, will use as rulers and even as judges in the new heavens and the new earth. Worship team's going to come up now, and we're going to sing um, that song that they wrote for a series about God's kingdom coming. And I hope, I hope you take this, this time to reflect on this. Um, we're going to put out a podcast um, on an interview I did with an Alliance Defending Freedom lawyer, and one of the things that he said, I said, how can the church, how can we as the church be part of what it means to support religious freedom in our, in our present context? And he said, honestly, there's one, just one thing. He said, just tell them to stand. He said, they don't know this because of the way the press covers these cases. He said, but we actually win most of them. The majority of Christians that stand up for their religious liberty that we defend, win. And then the press covers the three or four a year that we lose. And so they think that if they stood up for themselves and somebody defended them, that they lose. But it's not really true. And so many Christians are afraid to speak up. They're afraid to stand. And you shouldn't do it off the cuff. 
Sometimes it's good to actually, like, talk with somebody at one of these foundations before you decide how you're going to stand or speak up. But he said, if the church doesn't stand, all of their liberties will be eroded. That is, that there is a push on that every day. But if they stand, if they have a bravery that isn't obnoxious, then we can defend the first liberties of all people, including the church. Let's pray and sing. Father, we, we recognize that in a just completely pluralistic culture like the one we live in, that figuring out what it means to live with people who believe absolutely the opposite of what we do, and yet um, stand for our liberty to believe, and yet not use it coercively against them, and to sort out how that's going to happen, being ready for our blood to be spilled even, to hold to a good conscience and sincere faith, and yet to seek to have a new birth of freedom for every generation, to enjoy. These are difficult things that require vigilance and risk and faith. And so God, would you please give us faith? Would you please empower in us a purity of heart a good conscience and a sincere faith to see you as you are so that we can embody what it looks like to live in human dignity, to live with liberty, and for that to produce love which blesses all people.